Hello, gangsters. Gang tresses and non-binary folk engaged in organized crime. Azalea here with a pre-podcast message. I got bad news, and I also got obscenely awesome news. Uh, the bad news is that I fucked up my audio for this episode. Uh, it got recorded wrong. Uh, Jay didn't do anything. That was... on my side. I think my computer used the built-in mic instead of the smooth and silky one you're hearing right now. I have no idea how that happened. It's never happened before, and I'm having trouble reproducing it. But it's something I'll keep an eye on, and I'll check for it, and it won't happen again. I'm going to sound pretty bad on this show. Uh, Sometimes my volume will pulse in and out in a way that'll be annoying. But I did try and clean it up, and... On default, it's it's bad, it's tinny, it's got a lot of weird hums, but listen, it's still listenable. Uh, be honest with yourself, you've listened to something way worse than the audio you're going to hear today, so bear with me, alright? The obscenely awesome news is that I can announce that the movie I've been working on for the last few months, Bloom, is now out. Uh, You can find it by searching for Bloom on YouTube and looking for it on a channel called Wyatt the Word Weaver. Or if you're listening to this in a few months into the future, it'll be on a channel called Azalea or something to that effect. Bloom is about 75 minutes long, but it's broken into lots of three-minute chunks that make it easier to watch piecemeal. I didn't make it to make money or to get famous. I made it to express something I've had on my mind since I was nine years old. It's a film about identity, society, a lot of things I won't spoil. It's also the capstone for my YouTube channel, the Wyatt the Word Weaver channel, putting that era of my life behind. And at the end of the film, I formally announce the Azalea era of my life, the Blazing Moon arc. This podcast is actually um, one of the first places I started using the name Azalea. Uh, Start this podcast, I was very hesitant to do so, and now I'm very confident some of you have only known me by that name, and that fills me with more joy than I could ever express. I humbly ask that you watch Bloom. It's going to be linked in the description wherever you're watching the episode. It took me a long time to make, hundreds hundreds of hours, and it exposes the deepest parts of me, but uh, enough excuses and self-promotion. Sam, take it away. measure the incompetence of a leader. One can look where they took a nation, bearing the start and end of a reign. One can speak of tragedies, wars lost, plans blundered. One can look at public perception of the time, or historical frameworks, or all sorts of angles to determine if a leader was bad. But sometimes, just sometimes, a leader's incompetence is blindingly. Sometimes it sticks out like a meth addict in a grocery store. Sometimes the point that a leader wasn't cut out for the job can be proven in just one fact. Like only being in charge for 49 days. 
Welcome to No One Is Competent, the premier history and relatively current events podcast about why the people in charge are worse at their jobs than you are at yours. I am Azalea, joined by my brilliant co-host, Jaharis. You can reach us at nooneiscompetent at gmail.com, where you can ask us questions and recommend or request podcast episodes. We love to please the people. Our music is done by the legendary Sam Bryce, and we would have a single begging request to you just at the start. This podcast comes to you with no sponsors, no advertisements, so we would ask that you would give back and simply recommend this podcast to a friend. Tell somebody about it. Rate us on the Apple podcasting app or give us a like a subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast diddle that algorithm anyway it'll let you diddle it um i am uh, i will not speak for jay but i am a very vain man and like it when the number go up and i feel big and important about myself and we're working very very hard for you to make another podcast that is out late and being recorded very, very late into the night because Jay is obsessed in making sure that I am become a racist. Uh, on that note, Jay, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. Seems that my uh, my plan is uh, maybe not going along super quickly, but I think it's making some progress. Plan the steps. <laughs> yeah, you know, baby steps. Just just light Yagami, but it's just so Azalea goes on a racist tirade about Indians being lazy. Listen, all, all I know is that if I can get you to be uh, a, a Rhodesia guy by, like, the end of the year, then, then I will have accomplished my mission. Jay, I live in the southeastern United States. Why would I be a Rhodesia guy when I could just be a Confederacy guy? Because it's more exotic. Rhodesia is just the Confederacy <laughs> for cowards who never left the Commonwealth at the barrel of a gun. <laughs> Pretty much. Also, people who really like the FNFAL. Maybe a little bit too much. I always like to imagine amongst, like, far-right dudes and, and, and um, wood uh, windweeds and... Um, lost cause guys who, who fetishize those weapons and that style of warfare because they, they really just want to fetishize the, the culture and what it stood for and whatnot. And then they also coincidentally they don't like the guns they don't have to use. I was like to imagine there's like one guy on the forum who's just, just some autist who just really, 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 really likes this particular helicopter. Oh, I mean, that happens for sure. And doesn't understand why everyone else has to be weird about it. Now, I don't think there's as many of those people as you think there are, but they, they, they exist. They gotta exist, and I feel They're bad. out there, yeah. <laughs> because they are clearly being compelled by their interests into, into doing this. <laughs> yeah. But again, the ones that aren't, the yikes there. It's kind of like when people complain about how you can't, like, research trains or, or without, like, running into the fact that almost everyone who's into trains is a communist. To which I respond, 
you really, 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 really don't want to meet the people who are into trains that are not communists. <laughs> I mean, are they any worse? I couldn't say. I, of all like the mechanical interests I've had, you know, I'm into a lot of, I guess, vehicles, cars, planes, boats, whatever. I've never been a train person. I like trains. I like going on them. But I've never been like a train enthusiast. <laughs> well, that that's because you're a filthy sock dim. Perhaps. Yeah, no. The the le the left be like li li listen. Car bad train good is like one of the five bullet points of yeah. the left in 2023. That is true. Mostly by like American Twitter people who've never been on a train in like five years <laughs> but yes i mean where i live there's not one to get on so what fair whatever all right who what what is the the darling of uh today's episode we we're doing a, a relatively current one yep that would be uh i guess we're talking about liz truss elizabeth truss the uh, most recent former prime minister of Britain, I suppose. Not the current one, that's Rishi Sunak, but the person who was before him. Um, yeah, she was prime minister in 2022. People who are listening to this might remember her getting beaten by a head of lettuce in terms of her longevity. And yeah, we're basically just talking about that and also a bunch of other stuff about Britain today. I love it when a low-brow, low-effort, zero-IQ joke is good. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where, like, the lettuce story, like, was funny. And then, like, after Trust, they tried doing it with other things, and it wasn't funny. Because it really only works once. Okay, Wikipedia is not telling me which prime minister she was. Like, what number? I don't know. I don't know how many Britons had like you know, four hundred twelve or eighty seven or whatever. Oh, there have been a lot of prime ministers. I mean, she's like the fifteenth for Queen Elizabeth II alone. <laughs> there have been a lot of prime ministers. I I'm sure there's a list somewhere, but I I don't know. Stop my head. It's not like the U.S. where everybody knows. Like oh, the forty fourth, forty fifth, forty sixth. People don't really. Well, well, you know, the prime minister is in many ways equivalent to the United States presidency. It is a very, it is a different job that you get differently and you lose differently. It is weird and complicated. So, what are our what are what are our sources uh, for for this episode? Yeah, so yeah, our sources for today's episode include. From Fighter to Quitter, The Weird Rise and Fall of Liz Truss by Andrew Anthony at The Guardian. A Blink and You'll Miss It Premiership, The Rise and Fall of Liz Truss by Katie Balls at Tatler. The UK Constitution, A Summary with Options for Reforms by the Political and Constitutional Reform Committee of the House of Commons. A whole bunch of articles from the BBC News. And as Azalea, I guess, already leaked, uh, Wikipedia. I mean... <laughs> That Jay didn't make me do that. I just like went over to the Wikipedia. It was just like, is it going to tell me which <laughs> prime minister she was? And it didn't because.
because um, <laughs> no, Wikipedia is great. Don't eat Wikipedia. It's like one of the, the few good things on the internet. It's like not commercialized in any way, which is a, a, yeah, frankly a miracle. I mean, people like complain about the new format change. It's like, it's fucking Wikipedia. You should celebrate that every day that it continues to exist is a miracle. Also, if you if you just make an account, you can change the format back. Um, which, I mean, I, I've had a Wikipedia account for over a decade, but yeah, just make an account. It's free and you can change the format to the old one, which is more than you can say for a lot of sites. Yes, that do I actually don't mind it. Um... There, there's a weird, there is a weird amount yeah, of empty space, but there already was already, and it is more convenient. It allows you to do more things. Yeah. I yeah. feel like people just don't understand that, like, reading text on a screen is bad. Like, reading a block of text on a screen is going to feel awful if it is in any print that's any font that's, like, less <laughs> than 28. Like, if you want to read something on a screen and make it feel good, you not need, like, on a... a lot of graphic design and moving your eyes different places. Just, like, scrolling block paragraphs that aren't indented because paragraphs aren't indented online because, I don't know, the people who first made decisions online were troglodytes. Um, it, it just feels bad on the eyes and always will. I do remember when, like, those brief few years where it's like, oh, like, you know, e-ink or electronic paper, like, that's the future. It looks so much better. And it does look way better to read on. And then nobody bought it because, like, except for people who own the Amazon Kindle. <laughs> it's, like, objectively better to read anything text-based on, but, like, nobody buys them. But, yeah. Anyways, this is a different rant. One of the great wins in the last 10 years, actually. <laughs> Listen, if you love it, if you have an e-reader, I, I don't like e-readers. I wish I liked e-readers. To be clear, my position is I wish I liked e-readers, but they make they make me want to commit homicide. So I don't use them. They're infinitely more they're infinitely better and more <laughs> useful. But I'm very, very glad they have not become ubiquitous because I do not like using them. Which seems to be a actually prevailing opinion amongst book readers. Anyway, so Britain something. <laughs> we are talking about a Prime Minister of Britain who only lasted for 49 days. Resigned in complete shame and failure. And we could just tell you like how she came to power and what happened over the course of 49 days. But, you know, that would be like a 27-minute episode, and that means that there would be zero stress on me um, trying to make it while I put the finishing touches on the film I've been working on for eight months. So, obviously, we have to give you tons of context to actually explain and understand how the fuck we got to some lady being crammed into a job that no one was able would have been able to do and doing an even worse job than expected. So, what the fuck is Britain? It's an island on the ass end of Europe. Uh, you know, at the beginning of time, there are people there, druids, King Arthur's weird gender-bending witches, but, you know, the Romans... To the Romans, the island was essentially the end of the world. You know, they go there, they don't 
get much out of it. Eventually they leave. And once the Romans leave, the inhabitants of the island mostly serve themselves out for a while. You know, the Anglo-Saxons come in, they make an Anglo kingdom, an Angland kingdom of England. Baps about for a while, then it gets conquered by France and it dragged into the endless wars of Europe's tiny states all jockeying for power in a nervous dance of inbred bickering. The British learn how to fight, they learn how to trade, they do a bunch of wars that are very confusing, but end with an island unified under one government and a ruling class with a raging boner for colonizing other places. They go to the island next door, they go overseas. They, these Brits, they just love going places and doing colonialism. Nothing makes them more happy than rolling up somewhere, killing half the population, and forcing the rest to give them everything they ain't nailed down. And it's really easy for them to do this because Britain happens to wind up at the forefront of the Industrial Revolution. And why does the Industrial Revolution start in Britain? Also, a brief aside, you can tell that I didn't write this because I'm one of those pedantic people who would be like, technically the island, the single island most people think of as Great Britain. There are more islands in the British Isles, but... Yeah, that's, that's why I did... That's why I didn't let you write this part. <laughs> when we say Britain, we mean Great Britain. We mostly mean the United Kingdom. Um, there are other parts of Britain. I know that. Uh, also, British people get like very angry at Americans talking about Britain if they don't get this right, which is also why I'm mentioning this, because I would be surprised if we have one or two people listening from the UK. Uh, understand that I do Listen, know that it's I, I love my, Britain, my, my England, English, Great Britain are all not all synonyms. My, my English, Welsh, Scottish, and Irish listeners, I, I think you're great. I've been to England. Um, uh, Northern England is incredible. Is jaw-droppingly beautiful. Great snapdragons. Great lakes. Uh, great uh, fences made out of stone that don't even have mortar on them. That's cool. Um. You know, all, it was also incredibly miserable, but you guys seem to enjoy doing that. Um, yeah, anyways. Uh, but, but, you know, like, I, listen, I cannot be bothered to remember the, the difference between England, Britain, Great Britain. Come on. The United Kingdom, like, like, like come on. You gotta chill out. You gotta, you, you, y'all, y'all need to calm down. Listen, I have a name, Azalea, that goes by, like, people call me eight different things. People call me Azzy, Leah, Leia, As, A's. I don't care. I'm relaxed. Just just chill out. Everything's fine. Anyway, so, so why does the Industrial Revolution start in Britain? Well, that's a whole doctoral thesis, but long story short, it's nice to have waterlogged coal mines. Anyways, by the turn of the 19th century, Britain is humming with factories that churn out foods, uniform, guns, and boats, and all that stuff that'll alter history. This technological advantage allowed an island smaller than the Carolinas to conquer vast swaths of the planet. Everywhere the British set up shop, they began extracting resources that only fueled their machines of industry and cultural machines of conquest. Wrapped up in this rise of industrialization was the rise of capitalism, and the British were soon on the forefront of instruments of finance just as they were on the forefront of instruments of war. British banks, Stock markets and speculators invented myriad ways of turning their massive fortunes into obscene fortunes, sowing loans and investments across the globe. At home, the difference between the wealthiest and poorest Brits grew as the fruits of conquest flowed almost entirely to the upper class. 
By the 20th century, the United Kingdom had an empire that spanned the globe, but that dominance was on a timer, for two reasons. First, the rest of the world was industrializing. No longer could a British citizen be as productive as 10 Americans, Germans, or Japanese. As the technology gap closed, it became increasingly absurd that an island would dominate continents. Also, Britain's centuries of imperialism meant that pretty much the entire rest of the planet viciously hated them, and either wanted them to fuck off or take their place as king of the hill. World War II was a bill coming due for the British Empire. The UK technically won the war, but it signaled their fall from global domination. The keys to the machine of global capitalism were passed off to the United States, which had long surpassed Britain in terms of industry and commerce. They also lost the capacity to keep vast swaths of the world's population under their boot. Britain's empire quickly crumbled as a cascade of nations threw off their yoke. Now, within a generation, the nation went from top dog to an empire on decline, and this would heavily influence the politics of that nation. The trappings of former glory are all around, reminders of their past greatness, supposed evidence of their current greatness, but the reality is that by the late 20th century, Britain is beginning to fall behind. This sense of fading glory, of not punching your former weight, would create a paranoid frustration in any nation, an insecurity born of trying to keep alive superiority going well past its prime. And it's really no wonder that this nation is deeply conservative, of course spending centuries concentrating wealth at the top of society and being on the forefront of white supremacy also tends to help on that front. But now, let's talk a little bit about British politics. Here in America, students learning about the political structure of their own country have the luxury of being able to simplify things down to a single document written at a single point in time, the Constitution. A bunch of guys sat down in 1787, hashed things out, and came up with the system of governance that the U.S. follows to this day. Of course, things are a bit more complicated than that, but not nearly as complicated as the situation over in Britain. The British government is kind of like the rule set of Yu-Gi-Oh! You know, like, it exists on a basic level. But once you start doing complex things, you start peeling back, like, why certain things interact, it turns out that there's not so much a, like, nailed-down, singular, like, written way everything's going to be done, and rather layers upon layers upon layers of judges' rulings and forum threads and mistranslations from the company about how this interaction should go with that trip ca trap car and whether or not that causes that creature to miss timing. It's a whole fucking This is my favorite joke I've ever made on the podcast. I'm sure, uh... So you've probably heard Britain described as a constitutional monarchy at some point in your life. And that is true. The United Kingdom does have a monarch, but it doesn't really have a constitution. At least not a codified one. What British jurists refer to as the British Constitution is not a singular document but instead a collection of layers of legislation and precedent established over nearly the past a thousand years, tracing its ideological origin back to the Magna Carta in 1215. The key principle of the British Constitution is that of parliamentary sovereignty. Simply put, the Parliament, which is, you know, a legislative body that 
is supposed to represent the people, may pass laws on any matter without restriction from the law. Britain has a Supreme Court, but there's no cause of judicial review. At the end of the day, it lacks the authority to overturn any act of Parliament. Unity of powers, not separation, defines the British system. Parliament itself is made of two chambers, the House of Commons and the House of Lords. The House of Commons is composed of 650 democratically elected representatives, while the House of Lords is composed of 780 peers. These include life peers, people who are basically just named a peer by, you know, the sitting prime minister. And a lot of times this would be like scientists, economists, big donors, businessmen, things like that. You have the hereditary peers who are probably like the, the lords and ladies are thinking about. People who get it because they're the old aristocracy. And you have uh, the, uh, the ones from the clergy, literally from the Church of England. They still have seats in parliament by virtue of being kind of the state religion. It's, it's weird. Oh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> Britain is technically a theocracy. It's just really, really chill about it. Yeah. Which, again, is what happens when you don't have an, a singular written document that clarifies things. Just hundreds of years of, like, barristers arguing. Yeah. Now, legislation can be introduced in either chamber, but ultimately the Commons does have the authority to pass an act on their own accord, with or without approval from the Lords. So it does not need to pass... It's not like the U.S. Yeah. where it needs to pass... Both houses. Exactly. So, like, little pot. Wait, why the fuck does the House of Lords still exist? Like, do they do anything? They, do, 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 do they do they pass legislation? Like, do they affect I mean, anything? they can introduce legislation. They can modify it and send it back to the commons. They can, like, delay legislation. It mostly just exists because it used to have more power, and they don't want to get rid of it because of tradition that that's why it exists it exists because of tradition and but we're mostly yeah. going to be talking about the house of commons in this yeah when, whenever we say parliament you just assume we're talking about the house of commons um yeah now the head of the government is the prime minister the prime minister is formally appointed by the monarch and is selected for their ability to command the house of commons this means in practice that the prime minister is almost always a member of the house of commons themselves and they're generally the head of the party or coalition of parties that holds the majority of seats in the commons. This also means that the prime minister can lose their seat if the majority of that body turns against them. So there's nothing stopping Britain from having seven prime ministers in a week, no. <laughs> one on each day. They are not elected by the people directly. Yeah. For Americans, you can think of this is like if the, the, the speaker of the house was also the head of government. A little different, but yes, because technically <laughs> yeah. the Speaker of the House does not have to be a member of, of Congress. Well, technically... Uh, no one has exploited that loophole yet, but I cannot wait for some I mean, the, the reason why I said in practice is that technically the Prime Minister doesn't have to be a member of Parliament either. It could just be anybody. Really? <laughs> they don't even actually have to be British. They can be um, anybody who is uh, a part of the Commonwealth nations. They can be Canadian or Australian. What happens <laughs> when you don't have a constitution? I love it. I love Brit British. British politics could just be bad. Yeah. 
But one thing that Britain does have in common with other democracies around the world is the existence of political parties. These parties first began as kind of nebulous political factions around the 17th century, before gradually coalescing into the formal structured institutions we know today. The oldest of these parties is the Conservative Party, whose members are commonly referred to as Tories, Tories being the name of the older political faction it emerged from. Tories generally drew their support from royalists, the landed gentry, the countryside, the Anglican clergy, you know, all that stuff, leading to a, well, pretty conservative worldview that remains with the party to this day. Now, opposing the Tories in their early history were the more mercantile Whigs, who would then give way to the Liberal Party that contested with the Conservatives for power throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. Whereas the Conservatives can be seen as representing the countryside and the landed elite, the Liberals were stronger in the city and and with those who drew their wealth from Britain's growing mercantile empire. The Liberals, however, would ultimately enter a steep decline in the fallout of the First World War, and they'd be replaced by Labour Party as the main force opposing the Tories in this two-party system. Labour Party, as the name implies, grew out of an alliance of socialist and trade unionist movements, and they're firmly to the left of both the Tories and the old Liberals. And this whole time, the divides have been about class and modes of yeah, and like Weber, especially early on, is very explicitly like socialist, which I think is something that kind of overlooked, especially by people who aren't British. Like, Weber was pretty much a socialist party. So, for those who are not British, probably the only thing they really know about British politics in the last 10 years is Brexit. It made international news. In June of 2016, the British people voted on whether or not they would leave the European Union, which we will now introduce. The European Union is, well, I mean, it's kind of like Britain in that it's a giant pile of, of, of stuff. It's a giant pile of trade agreements and treaties that essentially allows the many small nations of Europe to act as one big nation and compete with other world powers. The European Union itself was not created until 1993, but its origins go back to the 1950s with the establishment of the three European communities. The European's Coal and Steel Community, the European Atomic Energy Community, and the European Economic Community. Britain, for the most part, remained an outsider in the early stages of European integration. This changed in 1972 when Britain, then led by Conservative MP Edward Heath, formally joined the European communities, which to that point had begun to be referred to as the common market. Membership in the the common market was a contentious issue that did not fall along simple party or lines or, you know, left-right divide. Many Tories, including Heath, were opponents of it all for its economic benefits. You know, these are people who are doing things for the wealthy. Other conservatives, however, feared it would infringe upon British sovereignty. Labour was similarly divided between those who viewed European integration as an important piece of creating a peaceful and prosperous Europe, and those who viewed it as merely benefiting business interests. 
When Labour came to power in 1974, they did so promising to hold a referendum on the issue. Ultimately, the Tories and the Labour Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, would officially endorse remaining in the common market. The Labour Party as a whole held no official position on the matter. In 1975, the first ever national referendum in British history was held on the issue of the common market, and by an overwhelming margin, 67 to 33, the British people voted to remain in it. Now, while most Tories had supported remaining in the common market in 1975, by the late 80s, many of them were having second thoughts about Britain's place in Europe as more and more treaties began to tie the continent together. This created a sharp divide in the party between pro-Europe and anti-Europe members. The issue became so contentious that Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who we'll be talking about, the issue became so contentious that Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who we'll talk about more later, was basically forced by her own cabinet into supporting European monetary programs in 1989. Thatcher would ultimately be ousted from power the following year, in part due to her opposition to the British participation in increasing European federalism. Still, though, the referendum in 1975 was clear. The British people wanted to remain in the common market. And in the 90s, with Thatcher out of office, a generally pro-European government was back in charge. This meant that when the treaty formally creating the European Union was finalized in 1992, Britain was one of the original 12 signatories. While the EU and the European communities that came before it have proven to be far from perfect institutions, they've generally played a positive role in the economic development of Europe. The EU was one of the reasons why Britain remained one of the world's wealthiest nations as the 20th century rolled into the 21st, and leaving it would only have negative effects on the country's economy. Yeah, like, listen, I'm not a huge fan of liberal, neoliberal capitalism, but, like, if you're gonna do it, getting rid of trade barriers, having a strong regulatory state that stretches across and isn't contradicted by various different nations, it's good, it's the way to do it. eases uh, the, the, the economic sludge yeah. flowing through the pipes. Yeah. I think it's probably also worth kind of mentioning that, like, you know, a lot of the, the, the dislike, like, you know, should we be in the EU, is rebel, regionalism, tribalism. Like, fuck the Europeans. And I get it. I live in Georgia. Fuck people from Alabama. It, it, Human beings do this. Everybody hates everybody else. It, it, it's just fun to dislike the folks that are over there. Yeah. And, like, you know, are there plenty of re of legitimate reasons to hate the Europeans? Sure, but let's not pretend they hate them for, like, <laughs> legitimate reasons. They just hate them because hating people is fun. And the Europeans hate them. It's just, human beings, we love hating each other. It's, it's like the main thing we do. Just get over it. Accept it. It's, it's just a thing. Yeah. The Rhodesia arc begins. Throughout the 2000s, it seemed that for the most part, the question over Britain's membership in the European community was over. The country had decided to be a part of Europe, and the people enjoyed the benefits of it. 
British citizens could now work, travel, and do business throughout the EU with ease. While Britain effectively refused to give up their own currency and adopt the euro, in all regards, Britain was pretty clearly committed to Europe. Divisions on both left and right regarding the EU, however, never fully healed. While the majority of Tory MPs supported the institution, a significant majority of so-called Eurosceptic backbenchers remained opposed to it. They viewed the EU as a bureaucratic leftist monstrosity that had subsumed national and, para and, national and parliamentary sovereignty, weakening British values and diluting the nation by allowing for immigrants from elsewhere in Europe to seek work in Britain. Aiding this fringe movement of cranks was the fact that, well, you know, the early 2010s were not a great time for the EU PR-wise. Uh, you know, there was a global economic downturn leading to a debt crisis across Europe and a genuine fear on the part of many that the euro was going to fall apart. Um, famously, Greece yeah. <laughs> was, was having a fun time right now, probably a future episode. There was civil wars in Syria, Libya, probably also future episodes that were leading to a refugee crisis um, that was sweeping over Europe and causing plenty of great politics to happen. In general, when things go bad, populists will find a target to blame. And it's hard to think of an easier target for populists than a bloated bureaucratic super entity like the EU. Once obscure groups such as the UK Independence Party, UKIP, started to become a serious political movement in the mid-2010s. Yeah, like, I'm old enough to remember, like, UKIP was, like, a joke. Like, it was, like, the only UKIP supporters were, like, people on the weird British forums in, in their 2000s. And then it became, like, an actual legitimate party. Um, it was weird to see. Anyways... This episode is not about UKIP or Brexit in Europe in particular. It's about Liz Truss. But the story of Liz Truss's downfall is also the story of the impossible situation of the Tory party, incompetence that was cultivated over years of short-sighted leadership. Our first failure is Prime Minister David Cameron. Cameron took power in 2010 as the head of a coalition government with the Liberal Democrats. This was the first coalition government since World War II, and given that this was the third election in a row in which the Lib Dems had increased their share of the vote, there was a common belief that winning an outright majority of seats would be increasingly difficult for any party going forwards. You know, like, again, like I remember a lot of like, political commentators back in 2010, 2012, and 2011 were saying that, like, okay, coalition government, like that, this is just what we do now. A lot of European countries are like that, where one party doesn't get a majority. You have to have two or more parties come together. Now, this David Cameron fellow, what was his vibe? He's is a guy. You know, he's uh, very much a typical Tory in terms of his upbringing. You know, upper class, went to Eton and Oxford, uh, you know, very wealthy. The guy looks like his blood is teal. Yeah, like... Okay, like, like you, you hear him talk for one moment and you're like, oh, this guy has never held a, a, a difficult 
actual business. Yeah. His branding was... Like, like this guy has never had to drive a car. So. Yeah. In terms of branding, he went for basically compassionate conservatism. Also kind of similar to what Bush did in the U.S., where... And, you the, know, he's, he was also a tall guy with some broad shoulders. Yeah. Like, he looked like a head of state. He didn't look the part. Like, he looked like an aristocrat, but, like, you know, he was good at looking like an aristocrat. And some people like that. Yeah, like, the, the Tories had an association by the, by the 2000s, for reasons we'll get to later, of being, quote-unquote, nasty. Like, literally the word nasty. Like, nasty Tories. That was just the thing. You nasty. And... Like Cameron's like big focus was just like rebranding the party. Like we're not nasty. We're like, you know, we we're we're in favor of like small businesses and families and traditional values and stuff like that. We're not a bunch of assholes. I I, I very much look forward to us getting to talk about that nastiness. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, it was, you know, in hindsight, we are now in the thirteenth year of. Tory party rule, but <laughs> continuous Tory party rule. But at the time, it was far from a foregone conclusion that the conservatives would win the next election, which was due to be held in 2015. Uh, you know, Labour held a consistent lead in the polls throughout almost the entire duration of Cameron's first term. With the chance to defeat looking quite possible, Cameron needed all the party unity he could get. This meant that he had to keep the Eurosceptics on board, and thus a commitment to a referendum on the EU was included in the 2015 Conservative Party manifesto. Cameron hoped that by doing so, he would be able to win the election, and as for what happened next, well, he probably just thought that the public would vote to remain in the EU, just as they had voted to remain in the common market back in 1975, and the Eurosceptics would be forced back into obscurity. See, Cameron and the rest of the leaders of the Conservative Party were, were opposed to leaving the EU. They had long been integrated with the interests of big business, and leaving the EU, I mean, that would be bad for business. The Labour Party was also, at least in theory, against Brexit. Surely this coalition of strange bedfellows will be ungrateful. Now, the main argument to leave the EU was a cultural one. Relied heavily, as we said, on the dislike of other Europeans, regulation, and a metric fuckton of disinformation, and the racist fear of non-white immigrants who were supposedly flowing into the UK because of the EU. We, we have to reiterate, like, in 2014, 2015, there, there are a lot of Middle Eastern, North African folk, like, coming into European countries. And there was a lot of debate and a lot of very, very racially charged debate over what should be done with them, should anything be done at all, how much help should, what should their rights be, so how much help, help should they get, how much do we, are we, quote, obligated to help them. This was very much, like, constantly yeah. on the table and constantly of... And oh. it was coming after, like, two decades of just, like, fear-mongering by other Europeans, like, if... A lot of I remember a lot of like British comedians would just have jokes about like Poles or Romanians taking jobs. Like that was a thing. Yeah, I mean the, these guys think Sicilians are yeah. racially inferior. You know, like what do you think they think about some bloke from Syria? Yeah. 
You know, this guy would, th these people wouldn't be uh, happy if, like, you know, a, a dude from Estonia tried to marry their daughter. You know, what do they think, uh, think about some guy from Libya? And there's, there is also a lot of disinformation. These arguments to leave are all being made by the far right of British politics, the radicals of the Conservative Party. Its proponents were loud and obnoxious, displaying strength in their willingness to flout the rules of common decency, very much in the vein of the American Tea Party. And one of their most prominent members was the once mayor of London, Boris Johnson. Keep, uh, keep an eye on that guy. And this, like, malaise of misinformation kind of, like, created this sort of confused apathy in the British public. The Brexiters were more than willing to exploit this environment with bold promises and lies. Boris Johnson was, Boris Johnson quite infamously toured the country with a big red bus that said, we send the EU 350 million pounds a week. Let's fund our national health service instead. Plastered on the side. Spoiler, Britain will leave the EU, and the National Health Service will not get extra money. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, that's not what conservative <laughs> politicians do. No. Now, the Remain campaign, on the other hand, focused on the economic benefits provided to Britain by being a part of the EU. These benefits are generally real. However, when the overall economic situation isn't particularly great, Voters don't really want to hear about how keeping things the same is the best way going forward. They want promises for change, even if those promises are based on spurious logic. And, you know, just because, because of how the Remain campaign relied on kind of heady topics, you know, economic stability, international cooperation, and whatever, that allowed the Brexiters to proudly play the role of populists, representing the common man against the stuffy elites who think they know better. Johnson and his colleagues widely mocked so-called experts as being out-of-touch intellectuals. And I mean, I feel like we have to make clear, the British public was right that their ruling class were fools that should all be dumped in a lake. Like, they should, they are correct that the e leaders of their country and the leaders of the, the, the EU have fucked up year after year after year. They're, that is not incorrect. The problem is that they are being given the wrong solution to the problem. Yeah. Now, Remain, that is remaining in the EU, had a strong lead in the polls a year out from the referendum, but the Leave movement gradually began to pick up steam. By the time of the vote, the two options were polling nearly 50-50, making it a toss-up. In spite of this, though, most people who weren't actively paying attention to the campaign, which includes most people abroad, expected that Remain was going to win. They were thus shocked on the 23rd of June 2016, when Louis won with about 52% of the vote. This is one of the first international events I remember happening, like, in the news cycle. Like, I had remembered international events before this, but this is when I was, um, I had just turned 18, and I was, like, trying to pay attention to, like, politics and world events and figure out how that stuff worked on any degrees. This is one of the first things I remember. And it cannot be stated how the 99% just assumed that Britain's staying was a forefront. Because 
you know, you just don't expect the hobo to, like, pull out a gun and just shoot himself in the foot. Like, surely no country would make such an illogical move would spend so much work to hinder themselves so thoroughly. And it would be a lot of work. It is going to be disastrous to leave the EU. And all of that disaster is, uh going to be hard to do it's it's kind of like getting out sheet metal and a welding arc and sealing yourself inside your house and then starving to death <laughs> you know you did all this work so both the campaign to leave and the last thing I want to say about Brexit is I think that a lot of the reason or the referendum, the reason the referendum happened the way it did is because so many people assumed that they would leave. They either didn't vote or they were like, ah, this vote to leave is a protest, like, because I'm dissatisfied with the current government, which they were, again, re re reasonable to be dissatisfied. And it, like, wasn't fully taken seriously. And also both the Tories and Labour are fucking and did not coordinate a plan. And Weber, like, Weber is led by Jeremy Corbyn at this time, who is, to be honest, uh, a Eurosceptic, too. <laughs> I mean, very admitted Eurosceptic in his early life. And, like, technically campaigned to remain, but his heart was very much not in that. He put in the uh, the bare minimum. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and deserves part of the blame. So that could be an episode all of itself. The Brexit negotiation process could be an episode of itself. Uh, to keep things short, it turns out that splitting from the EU is a lot more difficult than the Leave campaign made it out to be. Again, the European Union is built on dozens upon dozens of treaties and terms regarding all sorts of issues, from custom and trade to fisheries management that had to be negotiated between the UK and the EU. That was not particularly keen in giving the British the best deal possible. Of course, this is all before you deal with the fact that um, there's a border um, between the European Union and the um, United Kingdom, and that border happens to go through the nation of Ireland uh, that has had, well, let's just say um, some fun times in uh, determining if there's going to be a border there and um, what that border is going to be. And, uh, you know, uh, car bombs. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, we, we joke, but legitimately, if you go to the north of Ireland and you say you are not allowed to cross that line, the guy who says you're not going to cross that line is going to be shot at. And I don't even know which side he's going to be shot at from, but someone will shoot at him, and then that guy is going to bring in death squads to enforce the line. And there is a very long history of that happening. So, you know, good luck sorting that one out. And, but, you know, we voted to do this. We're going to sort this one out. And David Cameron, the brave leader of the UK and the Tories, saw this massive task facing the nation and promptly ducked the fuck out of there. <laughs> I, I love this. It's simultaneously one of the biggest coward move in modern politics and also, like, completely genius. Yeah. 
<laughs> like, it's great. He, he just said, like, hey, I wanted to remain. If we're going to leave, I'm not a good leader leader to do it. Uh, thus, uh, I'm going to go. And he, he got to just, he just ducked out on, like, all of the hard shit. Yeah. Like, it's so, ca- it's so spineless. But I can't say it's the wrong decision. Yeah. <laughs> now, the woman left holding the bag was Cameron's home secretary, Theresa May. As we mentioned earlier, the Prime Minister of Britain is customarily the leader of the party that has the most seats in Parliament. The job of selecting this leader rests with the party's MPs, not with the voting public. Through a series of ballots, the MPs are meant to narrow down the field of candidates to just two, and after which the Conservative Party members, you know, these are people who are like fee-paying members of the Conservative Party, this is kind of a bigger thing in Britain than it is in America, um, these guys, you know, these members will be allowed to vote for their preferred leader. Pretty much everyone expected that Boris Johnson would throw his hat in the ring and win the election. Johnson was the highest profile Weave campaigner, after all, and Weave had just won. Obviously, he'll be the guy who leads this thing. What actually ended up happening was that the second highest profile Weave campaigner, Michael Gove, who had campaigned alongside Johnson, literally on the same bus as him, and was seen as his closest ally, declared his intent to run for the leadership instead and threw Johnson under the bus, calling him unfit for the job. Which was easy, because they were on the same bus, like we just said. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, just gonna, just gonna kick him off and then... You really set yourself up for that one, buddy. I, I don't know what you would expect. <laughs> now, Johnson, in response, declined to run entirely and just set out the contest. In the end, Goh's leadership bid failed miserably because he was generally perceived by everyone as being an opportunistic backstabber. Because he was. And out of a field of Yeah. And out of a field of five candidates, Theresa May and Andrea Ledsom ended up being the top two. Ledsom withdraws and May wins by default. May had been publicly against Brexit during the campaign, but was now committed to carry out what she saw was the will of the British people. I kind of love how each of these British prime ministers are kind of like archetypes. Like, Cameron is like the snob, but plays the part like aristocratic ruler. Theresa May is the fundamentally misguided, but like kind of well-intentioned, incredibly harried bureaucrat. Like, she's the mom who just wants you to be quiet in the back of the van. Yeah. Okay, she, she's popping her fourth pill for the day. She, she, she's pinching the bridge of her nose. She's getting out the, the ledger. And she's trying to make it all work. You know. And, like, I do genuinely believe that Theresa May thought, I am a, uh, I am a servant of the people. The people want to leave. I will help them leave. I will do the best job. The thing is, trying to do a good job is stressful. Yeah. Now, when Theresa May takes office in 2016, the Conservatives have around 330 seats in Parliament, which is a slim majority. May decided to firm up her authority and make passing any kind of Brexit deal easier by calling for an election for the following year. You know, the- Pause. Yep. Rem- reminder. British politics, they're not based on anything. Yeah. There's no constitution. They, they, they can call an election 
kind of whenever they want. Yeah, they're... My understanding is they can also, like, just cease to call elections and just say the current people are in charge till the end of time. I, so, it, it's... I don't know if there's anything stopping them from doing that, because, again, their it's country's a bit, dumb. It's a bit Calvin Ball in that there is something, there is a law saying it has to be at least every five years. But the law is passed by a parliament, which means that parliament can always repeal it. <laughs> um, there was a, a fixed-term parliament law in the 2000s, 2010s, which I'm deliberately not talking about because it also gets repealed and then brought back, and it's kind of confusing. But yeah, it, it's, it's, it's Calvin Ball. You know, There was a so-called long parliament in the 1600s that lasted for 20 years, you know, same member as 20 years. They could repeal you know, the fixed term provisions today and do that again if they wanted to. <laughs> but um, yeah. But yeah, May's thinking, yeah, like, you know, we've just won. Obviously, the people are pretty conservative because, like, you know, Brexit and whatever. So I'm going to do an election. Conservatives are going to win. And I'll be able to pass something comfortably. And that turns out to be a massive miscalculation as our tanking popularity led to a resurgent Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, who we mentioned earlier, picking up 30 seats and the Tories losing 13. The Conservatives were still the largest party in Parliament, but they now lacked a majority and thus were forced into forming a coalition with the Northern Irish Democratic Unionist Party to form a government. May now had to negotiate a deal with the EU while heading up a shaky, increasingly unpopular government. This went about as well as expected. Basically, all of her proposals were derided as being too soft by the hardline Eurosceptics of the party. After failing to pass a Brexit deal three times, May stepped down. Probably hard to negotiate Brexit when you are uh, partnered with the Northern <laughs> Irish Democratic <laughs> Unionist Party. Yes, a, a party which literally formed out of Unionist militias. <laughs> yeah. Famously reasonable people. <laughs> yeah. So, so she fails three times and she steps down in 2019, which means it's time for another leadership election. This time, Boris Johnson ran and won, easily defeating Jeremy Hunt in the membership vote. All right, so our third batter. Boris Johnson had a fairly typical Tory upbringing, being born into a very wealthy family. Uh, his father ironically worked for the European Commission, a predecessor of the EU. Attending Eton and Oxford, by the way, Eton is like, this academy that boys who are obscenely rich attend and get raised to rule the world and, you know, do a bunch of rape to each other and all become very, very normal. And, you know, he goes to Oxford where he hung out with Princess Diana's younger brother and was in the same club as David, David Cameron. Johnson went into journalism after leaving school, briefly writing for the time before being fired for fabricating a quote. That's awesome. That didn't stop him from getting a job at a telegraph due to personal connections. Remember, Eden, Oxford. He would mostly come to just use this platform to write bullshit articles about European integration. Yeah, by bullshit, what I mean is, like, he would literally, like, see, like, okay, the, you know, the European commissions are putting new regulations on agriculture for safety reasons. 
And he would turn that into like the EU is going to have bureaucrats tracking the curvature of each banana and rejecting bananas that don't meet the specification. Like it is literally all just made up bullshit. And that's just all he did. And people loved it, including Margaret Thatcher, who was alive and prime minister for part of this time. Um, this is sort of like a weird brand of British right-wing comedy that like people who are familiar with Jeremy Clarkson have probably heard a bit of it, especially like older top year episodes. In a way, I see Boris Johnson as almost like 70% the same person as Jeremy Clarkson. And there's probably an alternate universe where Jeremy Clarkson's prime minister and Johnson's the host of Top Gear. But anyways, yeah. Uh, is, that the, is that the guy who says the racist shit and people think it's funny because it's British? I've seen like a yes. compilation of, yeah. of Top Gear jokes on yes. YouTube. That, that, Lots that, of them very, very funny. And then just like you hear one from that guy that's just like, now see if, like if if if, I, if you if if I said that my buddy would would neck me. Like don't do that. Yeah, that is Jeremy Clarkson. Um, but yeah, Johnson eventually becomes an MP in two thousand one, and then the mayor of London in two thousand eight. As mayor of London, he would quite conveniently shift his political tune, embracing the pro-Europe, pro-immigration outlook of the city. Yeah, it was during this time that... I mean, it's a city. Yeah, yeah. he basically does a 180. And it's during this time that he also really popularizes his image as a man of the people, a sort of lovable buffoon who would say silly things and sport a messy haircut because he wasn't one of these stuffy, politically correct elites. He an, inten an intentionally messy. Yeah. He attached his name to flashy, visible programs, you know, such as by riding bikes to work, in order to promote a bike-sharing scheme that would become known as Boris Bikes. It worked. Johnson had a high approval ratings, and he easily won a second term in 2012. And he would keep, you know, being popular for the most part all the way until he steps down in 2016. Now, Johnson had played the role of a pretty liberal Tory in order to succeed in London, but once he was back to being an MP, he runs for Parliament again, he saw the way the political winds were shifting and reverted back to his old Eurosceptic populism, eventually being the most visible leader of the Weave movement, as we mentioned earlier. Now, as Prime Minister, Johnson was able to get a you know, revised version of Theresa May's Brexit deal passed through Parliament, it's a pretty mediocre deal, which basically just kicked the can down the road on a bunch of issues, but it was something. He then called for an early election, in which he absolutely crushed Corbyn's Labour Party and won an outright majority. Question. Yeah. So, I, Boris Johnson, I think, is a figure that, like, confuses a lot of people. While he was before he was in power, while he was in power, now afterwards, because it doesn't often seem to like run by quote the rules, especially like of American politics. A lot of people compare, uh, compare him to Trump, which is both obvious and also wrong and also right. Um, I always kind of get the sense of was told that Johnson was like an outsider within the the Tory party, or at least the sort of... I would say that's... Yeah. And as a and as a Leave guy, maybe he was 
Was that ever really true, or was that just kind of smoke? I think it's I think it's like partially true. He did have a rivalry with David Cameron, allegedly dating back to school. Um, I think a part of it is because he's so willing to shift his beliefs, and a part of it is um, mm-hmm. probably because like when he was prime minister, like he was fine, and you know Cameron's government had been defined in large part by austerity. You know, the idea that, you know, we respond to, like, economic crises by, like, cutting government spending or whatever. And that's, you know, it it sucks, but we have to do that for the sake of the nation. And Johnson's like, oh, that's all bullshit. You know, we can spend. Who cares? And one of the reasons why Johnson's successful is that he wins a bunch of seats in what was called the Red Wall, which is, like, a lot of the labor voting areas in the North, particularly, which are these old, like, industrial areas, because he does campaign heavily in those areas and appeal to a lot of them whereas like the tories have traditionally been associated more with like the been more upper class you know the south of england which is the wealthier part of england so so it's similar to the when the republicans won in like the rust Belt. yeah very much so yeah and you can also see like maybe johnson might clash with other people in the party for his personal populist uh, st- and, and style and you know he's very loud yeah. can be very he, crude you know, and also um you know easily you know lies and you know, yeah and falsehoods and plays with the press yeah and also as a matter of political philosophy johnson was very much a believer of almost like executive role for the prime minister and that like prime minister should be almost kind of separate from parliament kind of like a president and just do things on their own and that also takes off a lot of, obviously, a lot of MPs, you know, people who know that they'll never be prime minister, but are proud of the fact that they exert influence over politics, you know, don't want to see that power taken away. So that's kind of another reason why he loses favor with what's called the backbenchers, the, the people who are MPs, but not a part of the, the cabinet. And then there's the fact that he succeeds where May fails, which I think also confuses a lot of people, including me. And like, what I have to assume that happened is that like, he just took a bad deal, but like, was able to finesse it into telling people it was a good deal because he was a political outsider doing something new. Basically. And just kind of believed it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, so so Forrest was was brought in. He He, he did some rebranding and he shoved it through. And with this new election and being in power, things are going really well for him in 2019. Plenty of political observers view him as perhaps the strongest prime minister since Blair, and expected him to be in power for years to come. And COVID happens. So Johnson's handling of COVID is, again, probably an episode. But it's very weird and mixed. A lot of ups and downs. Basically... His response was perceived to be bad at first, you know, basically just ignoring it. But then he was able to turn that around by reversing course and eventually implementing a pretty rapid vaccination program. Many people remember that he actually got COVID, and that probably spurred a lot of sympathy for him. Folks in the U.S. need to remember that most world leaders, even conservative world leaders, uh, all across the globe, generally saw their, their approval rating rise during. Even if they didn't handle it super well, like, they generally got points for trying if they were perceived as trying. Would you agree with that? Yes. There was a rally around the flag effect in a lot of countries. 
So coming out of 2020 into 2021, things are going pretty well for them, but then his popularity takes a major hit through a series of scandals, most notably the, quote, Partygate scandal, in which it was revealed that Johnson and members of his government were holding social ga gatherings in the Prime Minister's mansion during the height of the pandemic. This is a time when regular people are being arrested by the police for doing such gatherings. You know, the British people are enduring months of soul-crippling lockdown. And they are inflamed by hearing about political elites just flaunting the rules. Johnson's premiership would ultimately suffer a death by a thousand cuts, with the final being the Pincher scandal, in which it was revealed that he had been aware that Deputy Whip French Chris Pincher had assaulted multiple men and did nothing about it. Long story short, after tons and tons of scandals, Johnson ends up announcing his resignation on July 7th. This meant that it was time for the third Conservative Party leadership election since the referendum. Um, I did this, Jay knows that I've, um, I, I've said this many times, but, like, I was baffled when Boris left office. Like, what's against him? His, his, his fucking, uh, his assistants are snoring too much coke and his... <laughs> What 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 of his secretaries playing some grab ass like? That that's that that that's been that's been in every government in, in like every country for the last sixty years since they invented coke. I think Wait. I think the difference what? at least the difference. This, this is par for the norm. The difference at least the difference between like Britain and America is that like in Britain, if enough of them peas decide they want them out, they can replace them. You know, and this is why <laughs> that's theory, kind of why my theory is that the, the the conservative party elite really just wanted any excuse to get rid of this guy and just fucking jumped up, jumped up. Probably part of it, yeah. So that finally leads us after an hour of recording to the girl of the hour, Liz Trust. Lizzie, 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 Lizzie. Now, as a bit of background, Mary Elizabeth Truss was born on July 26, 1975, in Oxford, England, the daughter of a nurse and a professor of mathematics. Now, before we go into Truss's career, it's worth explaining the historical events that shaped her upbringing, because this podcast is just about doing background context. Truss was born into a Britain that seemed to be on the verge of collapse, the result of trends that go back all the way to the Second World War. Now, like we mentioned earlier, the fall of the Liberal Party during the First World War left Labour as the dominant party on the left of the spectrum. Labour controlled government a few times in the 20s, but their big break came at the end of World War II when Clement Attlee became Prime Minister. Atlee's government both embarked on sweeping Keynesian economic programs, designed mostly to stimulate manufacturing and exports, as well as creating many of the elements of the modern British welfare system, most notably the National Health Service. The Tories would eventually retake power in 1951, but they kept most of Atlee's reforms in place, creating a dynamic known as the post-war consensus. Americans will recognize this as being relatively Identical to what happened to the FDR's uh, New Deal programs of 
later the Great Society program. Yeah. Really hard to repeal benefits. Uh, those happen to be very, very popular because uh, people like um, not dying. Yeah. Now, the 1950s were actually a very good time for Britain's economy. Unemployment was low, British goods made up 25% of the world's exports at the start of the decade, and Atlee's welfare programs provided a new safety net that had never been seen before. Britain was, yeah, I'm sure, a second place to America and the Western world, but that was still a comfortable position to be in. However, as the 60s rolled in, worrying signs began to appear. British industry had benefited from having suffered less damage during the war than any of, than of any other power save for the United States. But now, places like West Germany, France, Japan, and Italy were recovering rapidly and cutting sharply into British exports. The loss of empire was also starting to take its toll. At the start of the 50s, Britain still retained several of her colonies, and those that had recently become independent typically still maintained strong economic. And those who had recently become independent typically still maintained strong economic ties with the United Kingdom. This meant that British businesses had relatively captive markets to sell their goods in. By the 60s, however, little of the empire was left, and those new countries were opening up their economies to the rest of the world. You know, ever since the Industrial Revolution, Britain had primarily been an export economy, but by the 70s, deindustrialization is beginning to take a hold. The economy is beginning to stagnate. And this is all worse because it's the 70s, and global inflation is happening, hence the term Stagnation, inflation, stagflation. The conservative governments of the early 70s sought to combat this rot by expensive spending programs. This only fueled inflation, led to a debt crisis that forced Britain to take out a loan from the IMF in 1976. Just complete national humiliation. But then labor was in charge. They found themselves similarly incapable of riding the economy. Move to cap wages in an attempt to combat inflation despite a series of strikes culminating in the 1978 winter of discontent. That is the most British <laughs> thing I have ever heard. God, you call you call you, you call a hinge point of economic and political clashing the winter of discontent. <laughs> yeah. There were, there were really massive strikes, like especially in 78, but like throughout the 70s. And this post-war consensus would finally come to an end in the hands of the Conservative Party under Margaret Thatcher, who became Prime Minister. Bum, 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 ba-dum, bum, ba-dum. <laughs> yeah. You... Bum, 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 ba-dum, bum, ba-dum. Bum, 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 ba-da-da-dum, bum, 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 ba-da-da-dum. The neoliberalism is coming to end all your people and kill your dog. Thank you. But yeah, Thatcher becomes prime minister in 1979, following the winter of discontent, and will serve in that role until 1990. Thatcher completely abandons the Keynesian methods in favor of a neoliberal approach. Which is really mean, because Keynes was British. <laughs> yes, he was, yeah. 
Thatcher's policies amounted to a shock program of labor cuts, deregulation, privatization, and union restrictions. Thatcherism decimated the already decaying British industrial sector and led to a large spike in unemployment during the early years of her premiership. Now, going into the 80s, many expected Thatcher to lose the next general election, but her and the Tories were saved by a combination of the Falklands War, which Britain will win, and disunity amongst the opposition. Now, Labour during the 70s had become divided between its more left-leaning and more centrist members. By the 80s, the left had come to the ascendancy. 1983 saw Labour put forth their most leftist manifesto in decades, calling for higher taxation, renationalization of privatized industries, abolishing the House of Lords, withdrawing from the European economic community, and a unilateral nuclear disarmament. That means Britain giving up all their nuclear weapons during the Cold War. Now, this manifesto would come to be known as the longest suicide note in history, which kind of tells you where it gets them. Going into the 1983 general election, several centrist MPs left the party to form their own party, the Social Democrats. The SDP entered the pact with the remnants of the old Liberal Party to form the SDP-Liberal Alliance. For a while, they were actually in the lead in the opinion polls, but a combination of the Falklands War, as we mentioned, and mild improvements to the economy meant that Thatcher would win even though her share of the vote actually decreased from 44 to 42%. Oh, you're, you're telling me that uh, violent jingoism and left infighting <laughs> let uh, the right ascend? Who could have possibly seen this coming? Yeah, you know, Labour and the SDP liberals will split their portion of the vote almost equally. Now, the SDP liberal lines, if you're wondering what happens to it, eventually becomes a single party, and they call themselves the Liberal Democrats. They're still around. Third largest party um, currently. Thatcher would remain in office for the rest of the 80s, overseeing uh, economic reorientation away from manufacturing and towards finance and services. The economy grew, but so did inequality. In the end, Thatcher would be ousted by her own party due to her increasingly stubborn support for unpopular policies, such as by replacing local property taxes with a poll tax, and her growing opposition to European integration, which a lot of her own party supported. I think um, it's worth to note that Thatcher is generally seen as the British equivalent of Ronald Reagan being this politician who really helps, like, shift the tone of the country towards conservatism for a very long time. Not just politically or government-wise, but, like, culturally. And her legacy will it has seeped over all of the events we've already... You know, her shadow is cast over all of the events we've already talked about. And while Truss was too young to play any role in the event of the 70s and 80s, they undoubtedly had an impact on her eventual political ideology. Truss's parents were well off, but not quite as elite as the likes of Boris Johnson and David Cameron. Truss thus had her primary education at comprehensive schools, basically the normal schools of the vast majority of British students. She would later on life portray her school, Round Hay Schools in Leeds, as run down, economic 
as a rundown, academically inadequate institution. Which is pretty far from the truth. It was decent by the standards of the day. After Roundhay, Trust attended Oxford University, studying philosophy, politics, e economics, and graduating in 1996. Philosophy, politics, and economics. All things that are completely real. That's not three separate degrees. That's like a one degree. It's what we call philosophy, politics, and economics. It's common in Britain. And then there are, there are schools, I think like Yale in the U.S. also offers that as, as a degree. You can do that. <laughs> Most well-known. Kind, of, kind of very old-fashioned thing. In the, in the world, ladies and gentlemen. It was at Oxford that she became politically involved by joining the university branch of the Liberal Democrats and eventually working her way up to the position of club president. That Trust began her political life as a Lib Dem and not a Tory is sometimes shown as an example of her lacking political convictions. But in reality, it displays perhaps the defining aspect of her politics. Her firm commitment to neoliberal and even libertarian values. This is a woman who grows up in Thatcher's Britain. Liberal part of the Lib Dems comes from the old Liberal Party, after all. And in the mid-90s, the Lib Dems were perhaps the only party most committed to rolling back the government in both economic and social ways, including supporting the abolition of the monarchy and the legalization of marijuana, which were both parties that, parties that want, which were both policies that young Liz Trust supported. This is a 20-year-old college student. Yeah. <laughs> down, with the, down with the queen, let's smoke that gas. Now, it's also during... Like, is that weird to anyone? <laughs> yeah. It's also during this time that we start getting more stories about Truss's personality. Lib Dems who worked with her generally described her as being thoroughly self-assured in her own beliefs and unwilling to budge from her positions. Quoting from The Guardian, If you spend any more than three minutes in her company, you had no doubt at all about what she thought of the particular topic you might be discussing, Littlewood says. Littlewood was another Lib Dem who was at Oxford. For others, like Neil Fawcett, a fellow committee member of the Lib Dem Student National Executive, this trait of certitude came across as dogmatic and unbending. Quote, she always had very strong views on everything, he recalls. Sometimes they were based on knowledge or experience, but quite often they weren't. My main memory is that if she came up with something that simply wasn't going to work, and I was in a position where I had the experience to know that it wasn't going to work, she would still argue the case anyways. Now, Truss is also described as having a, quote, weird personality, a word that would stick to her throughout her career. Quoting again from The Guardian, When asked to describe Truss, two former conservative government ministers both use the same word, weird, she doesn't have any friends. She's just weird, one said. She sits far too close to you, said another. And when she talks to you, she keeps repeating your name. It's weird. If I really feel like going about and beyond, I might splice in some, uh, us talking into this podcast. She has a obscenely awkward way of handling words. I agree with Paddy Ashdown when he said... Everybody in Britain should have the chance to be a somebody. Rishi is a very finely dressed person, and I'm a great admirer of his dress sense, so... In December, I'll be in Beijing, opening up new pork markets. Pork markets is the famous 
example. Yeah. Um, definitely get the vibe. You know, I knew a lot of overachievers growing up. This is definitely like, you know, prep kid without a personality and just utter burning ambition. No, she's right. No, she's right. Just going to bully her way through. Most people just going to get her what she wants because she's not super dumb, dumb and like, you know, just fucking let her have it. I'm tired. But like, completely lacks any personality or charisma or real ideology. I would actually say that she has ideology. I think she, I'll get more to this later, but I do think she's well, it's firm. It's an ideology of. Yeah. I think she's yeah, okay, like a I firm believer. I, I can't argue that point well, but it, it reminds me of a lot of the people I was in high school with. I, I think she could have easily ended up being a socialist or, you know, a weird, like a nationalist type conservative, or whatever, and be a firm believer of that. But I do think she is a firm believer. Unlike somebody like Johnson, like Boris Johnson, is somebody who will lie constantly and get away with things. Whereas Liz Trust, to me, feels like somebody who just remains stuck in their ways constantly and gets away with things. Yeah, but it's a it's a sort of ideology that comes from like I'm drawing a blank. I'll see. I don't know. There's just something about her that's like. Time. Regardless of me faffing about intellectually, it's also quite likely that Truss preferred the Lib Dems over the Tories because, well, the Tories were the party of the establishment. The Conservatives were in power since 79 and would remain until 97 when they were crushed electorally by the Lissurgent Labour Party under a new leader, Tony Blair. Truss's own parents were firm Labour supporters, with Truss even describing them as being to the left of Labour. In a way, Truss's move away from the leftism of her parents and toward neoliberalism mirrored that of the Labour Party during the Thatcher era. In the years following the longest suicide note, centrists had gained control over the party, culminating in the leadership of Tony Blair. The party was officially known as Labour, but Blair and his supporters rebranded it to the popular mindset as New Labour. God, I hate the 90s. <laughs> Contrasting it with the staid Unionist Party of old. Quoting from the 97 Manifesto, New Labor is the party of ideas and ideals, but not of outdated ideology. What counts is what works. The objectives are radical. The means will be modern. Yeah, this guy is the British Bill Clinton. Blair modified the Labour Party rulebook, most notably ending Clause 4, a clause dating back to 1918, stating that the party's goal was to secure for workers the full fruits of their industry through the common ownership of the means of production. This language was naturally left out of Blair's new version. <laughs> it's called the Labour Party! <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that, Jay. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yep. Now, Blair is an advocate of what was known as the third-way politics, the brand of politics that sought to portray itself as a synthesis of the center-right and center-left while abandoning the extremes of both sides. Yeah, this is, this is Bill Clinton. 
Practically speaking, this meant generally liberal social and economic policies. Blair kept Thatcher's restrictions on labor organization and kept up the privatization of industries, but he did also introduce a minimum wage, because Britain did not have one beforehand, and increased spending on social services. I mean, right now, the United States kind of yeah. does a knife. Yeah. Like, I live in a, t in a state where the minimum wage is $7.25. But if a high schooler is going to get a job, um, that job is going to pay them $10 an hour because that is just functionally the minimum yeah. wage. This is also when power ends up being devolved from the central government, with Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland gaining their own assemblies and London gaining an elected mayor. Important point, power devolution means that Parliament is giving this authority to these local bodies. They can take it back at any time. It's not like in the United States, um, which we saw recently with Scotland's gender bill getting overruled by, by London. Blair's victories in 97 and 2001 were massive, the largest since World War II. But by the mid-2000s, his popularity was slipping due to his support of the American-led Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Labour won again in 2005, but with a greatly reduced majority. A few years later... And see, this is what happens um, when you see a hobo shoot himself in the foot. Yeah. His first hobo being the United States. Another hobo runs up, grabs the, gu grabs the, the gun, and yells, Solidarity! And shoots himself in the foot. Yeah. Now, a few years after that election, Blair will resign, and his successor, Gordon Brown, will be defeated by the Tories in 2010. Let's bring David Cameron in power. And we already explained yeah. all that. Yeah, stepping back in the timeline again. After college, Truss will work as an economist in the private sector, and this is also when she'll switch her party allegiance to the Conservatives in opposition to the Web Dems' proposal to join the Euro and increase income tax to fund education. She ran... As the woman who says that she came from an underfunded yeah. school. Yeah. Now, she ran unsuccessfully for parliament in 2001 and then again in 2005 before becoming, Damn. yeah, failed twice, before becoming the, also, you know, in fairness, 2001 is when Tony Blair is winning massively. You know, winning as a Tory in 01 is pretty difficult. 05 would be easier, but still not easy. But yeah. So instead, she becomes deputy director of a right-wing think tank known as Reform. Oh, this is going just <laughs> swimmingly. Now, during these years, Truss will refine her beliefs into what would become known as Trussonomics, because just tacking nomics at the end of names is what we do these days. Um, basically, this is just a repackaging of Thatcher and Reagan-style supply-side economics. Truss believes firmly that the principal impediment to Britain's growth and the source of all of its economic ills, as well as most of the social ones, are its bloated central government. Oh, honey, you're not even good at neoliberalism. <laughs> oh, honey. In this way, she aligns more closely with American Republicans than she does with many other Tories. Like, Boris Johnson would, like, make jokes about, like, the European bureaucracy, but, like, Boris Johnson's not a small government libertarian. He doesn't really pretend to be. He'll be like, oh, like the government shouldn't tell you what's politically correct, but he's not like the government shouldn't doing anything. Because governments, 
create the markets and are needed to facilitate the economics. Yeah. The whole... Now, it's perhaps not a coincidence that Trust has maintained a close relationship with American right-wing think tanks, such as the Cato Institute, the Heritage Institute, and the Koch Family Foundations. The, the what family foundations? Koch Family Foundations. Wonderful. Trust finally succeeded in entering Parliament in 2010 as the MP for Southwest Norfolk. In spite of her, a word that literally no one on planet Earth knows how to say, by the way. If you, know, if you think you know how to probably pronounce uh, the word Norfolk, uh, fuck you, you're wrong. In spite of her, I don't know how to pronounce it. In spite of her supposed weirdness, she did make a few close friends and allies, most notably her fellow class of 2010 MP, Kwasi Kwartang, which I'm just going to say now, Kwasi Kwartang sounds like the name of a racist caricature of a South Asian dictator who is the villain in an 80s video game ripoff of Contra. That's just what I think of when I hear that name. It's just my assumption. Point trust, Quartang was a firm believer in neoliberal supply-side economics and had a background in the conservative think tank scene. Trust and Quartang would go on to found a parliamentary club known as the Free Enterprise Group, whose policy proposals should be fairly easy to guess. In 2012, Trust, Quartang, and three other MPs published a book titled Britannia Unchained! in which they put forth their version of a resurgent free market nation. She's paid to do this. They <laughs> give her money to do this. She was an economist. She was an authentic. These people get paid money to shovel out nonsense, and you have to work as a fucking barista serving people macchiatos. While many higher-ranking members of the party were indifferent towards trust, David Cameron saw her potential, leading to a series of appointments including Undersecretary of State for Education and Child Care and Secretary of State for the Environment. Theresa May would make her Secretary of State for Justice, a promotion that trust would reward by a a promotion that Trust would reward by allegedly being one of the most prolific leakers of rumors to the press and the entire government. In spite of this, Trust would get a never job from a never Tory PM when, in 2019, Boris Johnson made her International Trade Secretary, likely a reward for Trust supporting him during his own leadership campaign. Alright, Jay, all these, these jobs, Undersecretary for Secretary of State for Justice, uh, International Trade Secretary, I'm going to need you to explain in American context like how high level these positions are because I have no... Undersecretary is not that high. We talk about like um, like uh, what's it? Secretary of State for Justice is, is definitely the highest of these. We'd be talking about like kind of like equivalent like a low to mid level cabinet positions in terms of prestige. Like th she's not the biggest deal, you know. She's not secretary. It's not like Secretary of State equivalent. But, but, the, but these are real. But they're, these they're are real, real cabinet yeah. positions. They are. So, so she is at this point. She is seriously a senior member. She's like in the top ten, top fifteen, like like senior members. Yeah. The big four are called like the great offices of state. That's the Prime Minister, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Foreign Secretary, and Home Secretary. And those are like, those are obviously prime minister as prime minister. 
And the other three are like, those are the big jobs, but these are real things. Yeah, when countries really be out here <laughs> having chancellors of the exchequer. Now, when Boris Johnson resigns in 2022, Truss was still not super well known amongst the general public. But her intentional appeals to Thatcherite nostalgia, combined with a generally weak field of candidates, meant that she quickly took the lead in the Conservative Party leadership contest. In the end, the top two candidates selected by the MPs were Rishi Sunak, Johnson's former Chancellor of the Exchequer, and Liz Truss. Sunak actually had more support amongst the MPs, but the party membership voted for Truss instead. So, like, just to, to, to like, roll back... Party members are, are just everyday British citizens who pay dues to be in the yes. party. And like, they just like vote. Yeah. I, I, I remember when this happened and my mom, not that my mother is like an uh, expert in British politics, but like she's like, oh, of course that happened. They, the, the Conservative Party members aren't going to vote for a brown person. That was her take. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's probably... was your mother... Not really. It, it, between a white woman and a brown guy, I guess racism, I mean, the one I, out listen, over sexism. <laughs> listen, uh, Liz. I mean, it, in in Liz Truss's defense, like Liz Truss's voice uh, is cringe-inducing instantly. Uh, I have never wanted to throw a chair based on a voice faster than just hearing Rishi Sunak. Sunak. Like, that man is superiority complex, like, made manifest into a human being. Like, he sounds like he ma he, he masturbates to, like, feeding, the idea of feeding infants in, into a, a wheel. Like, he, he just, like, 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 this guy, like, 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 rings a bell and gets condoms brought to him. Like, like, this, this is just, like, he, he's, he's, he's just... Uh, he is wealth. Like all the people we're talking about are wealthy. Sunak's wealthier than than pretty much everybody we've been talking about so far. Um, Sunak currently has more money than everyone you know and probably have oh, ev will ever meet put together. It, it, it's Sunak. You you keep inserting a D in there. Oh, am I? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I blame my accent. S Sunak. Yeah. Now, Liz Truss was formally appointed Prime Minister on September 6, 2022, by Queen Elizabeth II. It was perhaps a portent of the events to come that Elizabeth II then died just two days later. You finally know how far adrenochrome and the souls of Irish babies can go. <laughs> Grand not, experiment. Not, not, apparently the limit is uh, swearing in Liz Truss. Big Lizzie takes one look at Small Lizzie and be like, I ain't putting up with this shit. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so Truss has a government to create. Her cabinet was quickly filled mostly by pretty inexperienced MPs who just happened to share her beliefs, most notably Kwasi Kwarteng, who got the job of Chancellor of the Exchequer. One MP would In go... countries just be out here having Chancellors of the Exchequer. One MP would go as far as to describe the government as being, quote, full of sycophants and loyalists. 
Um, also, the most diverse government in, in, in British history. So, so a big win there. It's almost like uh, people of color are allowed into the halls of power when they are uh, prove when they prove that they are even better at shoveling <laughs> money down the mouths of the elites. Now, the major problem facing Truss at the start of her premiership was the ongoing house of living crisis, a term referring to how the rising price of essential goods has started to outpace wage growth for most of the country. Trust yeah, can I sort of go off a little bit here? Sure. So, like, uh, you know inflation's happening right now. You're living through it. It's complicated, but it is happening. Hopefully, maybe starting to stabilize, at least in the United States. It's even worse over in Europe. You had the war in Ukraine disrupting natural gas and, and grain and shit going down at this point. And also, like, it's very clear to me that... So, so like, Brexit happened, right? And everyone was like, oh, well, the UK is going to now go into instant economic decline. And then COVID happened. It kind of, like, you know, covered that up. Um, but now that bill is you know, still there and coming due. And uh, for reasons both in and outside of this control, Britain is facing a economic crisis. Just kind of wanted to give more uh, yeah. context on, on, on that. Uh, you know, cause like, they are deliberately making it harder uh, to trade with the world. They're having to pay more than other people uh, for stuff. And they have not invested in their own economies, and they've had decades of neoliberal policies of looting a lot of what's nailed down and making people poorer. What happened? Yeah. Go back. Yeah. So Truss and Quartang's response to this crisis was a ministerial statement known officially as the Growth Plan, but more commonly as the Mini Budget, because that's what the press calls it. The mini-budget amounted to a series of tax cuts and austerity measures, most notably eliminating the highest income tax bracket, blocking rises to the corporate income tax, blocking raises to the corporate tax, and cutting the budget of the national insurance scheme, which is a rough equivalent to Social Security in the United States. All right, boys, listen, I know that it's getting harder to your house and to buy your food and to get on the bus what we're gonna do is we're gonna make it so the wealthy pay less taxes and uh we're, we're gonna we're gonna take away uh your money god i love it when they stop pretending don't you love it when they stop <laughs> pretending jay i think as we'll see they probably should have kept pretending <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason a lot of conservatives pretend yeah the September 2022 mini-budget was met with an immediate divisive response from everyone. The Daily Mail praised it as a true Tory budget. Uh, Alistair Health at the Sunday Telegraph went even further, writing that the tax cuts were so huge and bold, the language so extraordinary, that at times I had to pinch myself to make sure I wasn't dreaming, that I had been transported to a distant land that actually believed in the economics of Milton Freeman and F.A. Hayek. 
For supply-side proponents in Britain, it was seemingly the start of a new era, or perhaps a return to the Thatcher era that many of them longed for. The bulk of the press and the majority of the public, however, were uh, not so favorable toward Truss's plans. After a decade of austerity, the idea of cutting taxes on the wealthy while simultaneously slashing spending on social services was hard sell. Things were made worse by the fact that Truss and Quartang's scheme would require massive amounts of government borrowing to make up for the loss in tax revenue, something they perhaps unwisely admitted to claiming that future economic growth would compensate for the tax cuts. Now, the Conservative Party as a whole was not in a great position in the fall of 2022. The Johnson scandals and the cost of living crisis had taken a severe toll on their popularity. You know, also, just the fact that they've been around for, for 12 years at this point. While Weber's approval had started to rise under their new leader, Keira Starmer, mostly due to him just not being Jeremy Corbyn, and having a good name, like... That's a good name, yeah. Keir Starmer's a, a solid... Like, I, I could do for a different last name, but, like, Keir and then two syllables. Solid A-. minus. Yeah. Now, most of the MPs were probably hoping that things would improve with a new prime minister, but instead, Trust was making things worse. You know, her approval was literally worse than Boris Johnson's. Um... By the end of September, the Tories trailed Labour by 17 points in the polls, the largest gap since 2001. Another poll calculated that if an election was to be held then, Labour would win 411 seats to the Conservatives' 137, a blowout similar to Blair's victory in 1997. And, you know, polling in Britain, not super accurate a lot of times. But if it's telling you that, like, they're going to win 411 seats, that's a bit... That'll make you worried if your job is being a conservative member of parliament. Now, perhaps most important, however, was not the response by the public, but out of the global financial markets. Yeah. While some business advocacy groups supported it due to the tax cuts, actually, as a funny aside... I don't know how true it is, but one of the, like, the leaks that got to the newspaper was that Quarteng was kind of egged on by like hedge fund guys who, who were basically just betting against the pound and wanted the pound to drop. <laughs> but yeah, in general, investors and traders were put off by the potential chaos it could cause to the British economy. British stocks dropped in value, and the pound fell to a 37-year low against the dollar, it was literally like almost exactly equivalent to a dollar, which is very weird if, you know, you're used to what the pound is. I mean, I have um, been to Britain and it is very annoying. Now, this sparked fears of a repeat of the 1976 sterling crisis, which was when Britain was forced to take a loan from the IMF. Speaking of which, the IMF itself publicly criticized the mini-budget, as did President Biden in the United States. Former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers stated that the U.K. was, quote, behaving a bit like an emerging market, turning itself into a submerging market, and that between Brexit and the mini-budget, Britain would be remembered for, quote, having pursued the worst macroeconomic policies of any major country in a long time. Jay, as a man who has studied uh, history and international affairs and uh, worked in Washington, uh, how normal is it for the IMF and the uh, 
American government to comment on the economic policies of a first world nation in good standing? Very, very abnormal. It was like, this was a big deal when they said like, this was not a normal thing to do. <laughs> Especially when the IMF of all people is literally saying that this is a bad idea because they'll cause more inequality. I mean, yeah, it's like IMF, I thought that was your job. <laughs> Ah, uh, the episode that will never happen because I am not competent enough. Talking about economics is hard, people. It's it's so fucking hard. I'm so sorry. I'm doing my best. If the public and the market's having turned against her, there is no way out for Trump. She sacked Quartang on October 14th. Eating her own, as they always do in their phrase. But by then, the writing was on the wall, and the ceiling, and the floor, and the dresser. And on the 22nd, she announced her resignation as Prime Minister. He expected Johnson to make his comeback by running again in position as leader, but he decided against it, perhaps due to him being unable to secure the support of enough MPs. The contest turned out to be a non-affair, with Rishi Sunak running unopposed and thus becoming the next... And as of recording, current prime minister. Now, perhaps the greatest irony in the long rise and short fall of Liz Truss is that her premiership was essentially undone in a single month by the same market forces that she was so ideologically committed to. Again, I really do think that, you know, whereas Johnson's more of a political chameleon, changing his views at will, Truss is a true believer, a devotee of the free markets. She genuinely believed that she would be rewarded for her faith. In a way, Trust could have succeeded probably if she'd only been more cautious, more clever, and less honest about her policies. If the growth plan's proposals were spread out over a series of yearly budgets, instead of just being dropped all at once, the outrage probably could have been contained. If Trust and Quartang had focused more on appealing to the public by telling them they'd all be paying less taxes instead of relying on like these like nerdy economic arguments about future growth and everything, they probably would have won more people over. Also, again, like they literally just admitted that like, oh yeah, like we'll have to borrow a shit ton. You, you don't admit that. You, you lie about that. <laughs> but like they're stuck in their think tank world where they're used to talking to people who agree with them completely and they kind of expect that like, Everyone else is, is like, people who are in right-wing think tanks, and that's not the case. Question about the internal um, politics of the Conservative Party. So, like, was the idea kind of within the Conservative Party that, like, we're just going to let this faction that Truss represents, like, hang themselves? Or, like, because... I mean... It, it, I think what's weird is that is that they couldn't stand up to her. Like if she was so stupid, if she was such, if she was different from the the normal fold, like are they just so disorganized that they they were incapable of opposing her, or do they not think she was going to be think, this yes. stupid? Like, I think it's a combination of both. I think they were very disorganized. Most of them did go for. Most of them wanted Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak got more votes on the MP ballot than Trust, but Trust still got a lot. I think a fair amount of them were like, maybe, you know, maybe she's, she'll she'll work. She'll be Thatcher 2.0, like, after 
Theresa May failed at being Thatcher 2.0. Like, maybe it'll be a good idea, and maybe she won't be that bad. Um, and yeah, I think that's kind of why, like, yeah, they they ended up going for her. Also, a lot of them probably expected that she wasn't going to pack the cabinet full of, like, nobodies who were just her friends. <laughs> and that, like, she would be better than she was. And again, like, if you do all the thing, almost all the things that she wants to do, but you just hide it better and you spread it out rather than being, like, upfront and gung-ho about it, then it probably works. <laughs> or at least has a better chance of working. Because, like, the, the the Tories have been doing austerity, like, all under David Cameron. And Boris Johnson did kind of reverse that because Boris Johnson, like a good populist, didn't give a shit about austerity and was fine spending money. Um, but, you know... Trust going back to austerity is not like the craziest thing ever for a Tory. It's just that, like she's not good at it. Yeah, you, you gotta lie to people when you when, when you stab them in the ass. Returning her forty nine days, Liz Truss became officially the shortest serving prime minister in British history. She's still a member of parliament and is unlikely to ever hold a high position in government again due to this embarrassment. Brought about by these two months of twenty twenty. It's very easy to feel bad for Liz Truss because she clearly was not up for the job. And it was also a very, very difficult job. You know, Queen dies as soon as she gets in. Nation is in mourning. You have economic problems caused by your own mismanagement. And also just the fact that things are complicated in the world economy right now. And there's wars and, and recovering from COVID. It's all very messy and difficult. And it's very easy to feel bad for Liz Truss. Do not. Uh, Liz Truss is a monster. Uh, she is an obscene monster. Liz Truss spent her entire life advocating for economic policies that would have meant basically 99% of the people of Britain uh, were less wealthy, less prosperous, less happy, and less secure. She did it every day since she stepped out of school. And she was paid. To do that. She was paid to advocate for people suffering more, for people starving more. And then she became a leader of a country and told them that they were going to starve more and suffer more. While the fat cats just uh, consumed uh, more pieces of the pie. And she was punished for it. And what I love about the story of Liz Truss, what's so delightful and delectable is that she comes almost as close, like, like this is as close as we're ever gonna get in the modern era to one of these rulers getting what they deserve. This level of humiliation for a head of state is basically unprecedented in the modern day. Not even Bolsonaro was humiliated this much when he lost. I don't think, I would, don't think, like. Yeah. He was heavily humiliated, um, yeah, because he's a bitch. But Liz Truss just like, just a universal shellacking. And what I love is just how historical it is. Because it's trivia. Because, God willing, you know, maybe someone will get assassinated by a, a car bomb 28 days into their premiership. But for the next few decades, 
Hey, let, let, listen, let's be, let, let, let's uh, lie to ourselves and say that, that everything's going to be fine. You know, for the next centuries of, of humanity existing and, and Great Britain being a country, on game shows and at family parties and whenever anyone busts out trivia, the question of who was the shortest serving prime minister in British history is going to be Liz Truss. 49 days. 49 days of disaster that were the culmination of her entire life had built up from this. Birth, growth, marriage, having children, climbing the, the corporate ladder, the political ladder to that place, and fucking the pig so hard, spilling everything everywhere. And she will think about it every single day of her life. The humiliation of getting the job that she probably wanted since she was a little girl and failing miserably, gaining nothing, a complete net loss. And she will feel the gazes of her friends, her colleagues, her fellow British citizens against her with loathing and contempt and a weird form of pity because she was pathetic. And even now that she's left, every day of her life, when people look at her, she'll think to herself, they're looking at her and they're thinking about it. Even if they're not thinking about it, she'll assume that they're thinking about how much of a pathetic bitch of a failure she was. And that just brings joy to my cold, spiteful heart. What about you, Jay? It's it's quite funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just like yeah, the trivia aspect. The longest serving, Robert Walpole, who had 20 years, give or take, back in the uh, 1700s. So to have like the two ends of the of the uh the record from the 1700s and from 2022 is is quite entertaining. So Jay, but now yeah, with it, uh, Lizzie out of the picture, what's the what what's the bright future with uh, that Britain's got ahead of it? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you got you got Sunak now, who's you know the the, the stable head of ha- uh, who's the stable you know hands on guy, you know, Chancellor of the Exchequer, former. He's now gonna take control of the economy, uh, and you know the IMF comes out and says that Britain is expected to be the is expected to be the only major economy to shrink instead of grow in 2023. Um, Yeah, it's not a great outlook. You know, I think when Brexit happened, some people went overboard and being like, there'll be chaos on the streets, you know, it'll be, you know, the the post-apocalypse, like there won't be bread in stores and like like that stuff. Like that people... Six months ago, were I mean, maybe it's because the winter in Europe was not nearly as a thing happening called climate change, like um, yeah. harsh as it was expected. Like in October of 2022, people were like, "Yo, Britain, be speed running on how fast you can become a second world country." Like, yeah, like, like you know, there's all this story about how grandmas were gonna freeze because the gas prices. And that I think you did know, not happen. Yeah, I, I think you know, even if the winter wasn't super warm, that wouldn't have happened. I think a lot of like the outlandish fears are 
are just that, like they're outlandish. The reality is that Britain is just kind of stuck and, you know, it's a country that used to be an empire, will never be an empire again. And their ability to define their role in the world going forward and their ability to make, you know, a prosperous economy that is good for everyone, or at least mostly everyone, like, is something they're still struggling with. And Britain's not the worst place to live in. In spite of all we said, there's a very good chance that you'd be better off, you referring to the generic audience living in Britain than living in America, if you live in America. Um, Hey, now. But it's not really as good as it it could be. And it's kind of just kind of like in in this stagnant state of like slow austerity. And as of now, like that seems to, like it'll continue, you know, labor may win the next election. As of now, it seems like that'll be the case, but the law can change between now and then. And labor will inherit not the best uh, economic situation. And they they may do well, they may do poorly. Yeah, I mean, it'll probably just be like Blair 2.0, which is minus the wars, better than the Tories, but yeah. (laughs) Um. So, um... And I, and I think it's very important to note that, yeah, the internet, uh, including, you know, occasionally us, loves to speak in absolutes and, and scaremongering. What's actually going to happen is that the British people are, you know, going to have to work harder and harder for less and less. And that is going to happen slowly over time as a result of the policies of those at the top, uh, not <laughs> drop of a hat steal your neighbors yeah <laughs> yeah and that's how uh the world works and that's uh that's that's what was voted for that's what was kind of voted for and that's what's uh delivered and ultimately truss is a again she failed because she broke from the norm because normally these people lie to you and tell you And if we don't recognize that they're all like Liz Trust, not just that they're incompetent or incompetent. Folks, that's going to do us for today. Once again, our music is done by the legendary Sam Bryce. You can reach us at gmail at noneiscompetent at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. Forgot to say at the front at Azalea Wyatt and at jharrys48. Those will be linked below if you're on YouTube and also hopefully in the descriptions. But I don't run those. Uh, Jay runs those. So, you know, that's inshallah. Anyway, I uh, need to go to sleep. So the podcast is over uh, here. Toodaloo.